What's up, folks? Welcome back to The Next Bite. In this episode, we're talking all about wetlands, which are surprisingly critical to our health, to our economy, to our ecosystem, and also this team from NASA that's using data from satellites to help inform our wetland protection efforts to hopefully help us save the world. I think you'll enjoy it, so let's check it out. I'm Daniel. And I'm Forbode. And this is The Next Bite Podcast. Every week, we explore interesting and impactful tech and engineering content from Weevolver.com and deliver it to you in bite-sized episodes that are easy to understand, regardless of your background. What's up, folks? Like we said, this episode, we're talking all about space and sending information from space back to Earth and making something good of it. seeing what we can learn from all these satellites and all these instruments that we send into space. Before we get started with our specific topic today, I want to take a quick second and pause and talk about our sponsor, Mauser Electronics. Um, They're one of the world's leading suppliers of electronics. As a result of that, they know a lot about cutting-edge technology, and they're able to share that through their technical resources, one of which is like really relevant to the podcast topic we're talking about today, so we've linked it in the show notes. It's about communications in space and basically breaks down... um, how complex of a challenge it is for us to send information from space back to earth. So we kind of all think about like the, the real marvel of technical wizardry is like, Hey, let's make a satellite and let's send it up into space. But they're saying, you know, we don't give enough credit to the Herculean feat of like communicating between spacecraft to control it. And then also sending massive amounts of data from spacecraft that are deep in space back to earth. So we can process that data. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting because like, I feel like most people see the satellite and they're like, that in itself is such a huge achievement, which it is, but the data that's coming back is, you know, arguably more valuable than, than just making the thing. So seeing what like is actually required to make that happen and not just again with like the satellites that we have in our orbit, but we're talking like deep, deep space. It's pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. And, and it relates dire- directly to our topic today, um, which is talking about sending images from satellites in space back down to earth to analyze um, the growth and shrinkage of wetlands in the world. So I think it's, you know, it, it relates really well. This article has got a really great deep dive on the tech stack of sending information um, from space into earth. And then also what the future of that might look like. Uh, so I think it's worth checking it out. We've got it linked in the show notes. For sure. All right, let's jump into our article, the real meat of the sandwich. Um, <laughs> the, the reason why we're all here. Um, Satellites helping scientists to track dramatic wetland loss in Louisiana. And this is a super team comprised of a bunch of engineers at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, Caltech, LSU, and Florida International University. So if, if you're sensing a theme here, right, we've got these people from NASA and Caltech who are like really, really focused on space technology. And then we've got these probably... Um, geologists and marine biologists from LSU and FIU, these, you know, Florida, Louisiana, these areas with a lot of wetlands that are focused on understanding what's happening on the ground. And it's actually an important theme to think about, right? We've got this team focused on gathering information from space, and then we've got another team focused on gathering information from the ground. And that's actually part of their secret sauce and how they made their solution work. Yeah. And did you know how important like wetlands were, by the way, because I really didn't before this? And then I started doing I mean, a little bit of I, research. You see the signs everywhere, like <laughs> wetland protection area. I've known that it's important to protect wetlands, but I had no idea why like the, or, or how critical it was. Ex- like the impact of it. Like what does it yeah. actually mean? There's something like 
350 million people in the world that like directly rely on wetlands for their source of food and farming. And then those are the people like directly impacted by wetlands. But if you think about like a domino effect of what those 350 million, like they're doing farming on the wetlands too, right? Like uh, rice paddies or whatever. So what, what that means for the rest of the world, it's, it's pretty significant. And we're seeing wetland erosion. You hinted at at the beginning, we're studying Louisiana and um, what since two, in the, in the past, what, 15 years, we've lost uh, wetlands that are the size of a state like Rhode Island, right? Yeah, I think it's since the since the mid-1950s. Oh, yeah. Louisiana's <laughs> lost enough wetlands to cover the entire state of Rhode Island. So we're not just talking like, you know, Louisiana's shrinking a little bit or it's not a big deal. Like, Louisiana's losing a ton of land. Um, and what's important there and kind of, kind of, kind of counterintuitive is I would think like, you know, the way that we've got like um, levees or walls built up to prevent stuff from eroding, I thought that that would help the wetlands. So did I. But it, actu- <laughs> it, it actually hurts them. So, so the main drivers of change, everyone kind of intuitively thinks, you know, it's the fact that the, t- the seas are rising because the glaciers are melting or um, the oil and gas infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico, like the fact that we're drilling for so much oil and we're piping gas out, like maybe that's messing up the wetlands or maybe the fact that we keep getting hurricanes in, in the Gulf of Mexico, like maybe that's destroying the Mississippi River Delta at, at this, the mouth of the Mississippi River in Louisiana. But actually the main cause of these issues is coastal and river engineering, yep. which has both positive and negative effects. Um, when we think about it, like reinforced levees and dams, they're actually designed to hold back silt and minerals and soil. Um, and I didn't know this, but that's a big way of how wetlands replenish themselves. Right. So they're actually rely on soil and minerals and silt being brought, brought down in. by the river yeah, yeah. because it's getting sucked out at the end, at the ocean end, all that, all that, uh, dirt's getting sucked out into the ocean at the end. It, what you really want is you want sediment being brought down in the river to, re- to replenish that wetland. And the fact that we've got all these over-engineered levees, dams, um, it, it, makes a situation in which wetlands can't replenish themselves. Yeah, and the process is called, I hope I don't butcher this pronunciation, but accretion. It's like the accumulation of the organic materials, the sediment. And like you said, that that counters things like sinking erosion, rising sea levels, and us putting all these man-made structures is preventing a lot of that from naturally happening. But then you made a point of saying it can be a good thing or a bad thing. So like, how could it be a good thing? And it starts to make sense when you think about how it's not just blocking this flow sometimes actually rerouting it and by rerouting it, you could put it in a spot where it actually is more beneficial to have versus the spot that it's blocking it from. So that's like another interesting concept to think about is yeah, so far it doesn't look like we've done the best job possible when it comes to these man-made structures, but it does seem like there's a future where we are more purposeful with these designs so that, you know, we're getting the functionality that we need out of it, but also helping the ecosystem as a whole. And I also just right now, I want to take a second to like allude back to a previous episode. Um, We talked about in episode 87, we talked about this startup called Natal Energy founded by these siblings who went to MIT. And their whole idea was creating turbines for dams that allow sediment to pass through and allow fish to pass through. Um, And that's something that, you know, kind of connected the dots in my head. Like maybe we need to make our dams more sustainable using something like the turbines that natal energy helped develop. And if you want to hear more, you can listen to it in episode 87. Um, you know, making dams that are more sustainable from a um, 
silt and mineral transfer perspective um, may allow river deltas and wetlands like the one in Mississippi to help, you know, to support the accretion and to help the wetlands preserve themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So what is the secret sauce here, right? Like we got to talk about that. What are these folks trying to do? Yeah, we, we kind of alluded to it, right? We've got this team that's focused on gathering space imagery mm-hmm. um, using a satellite called the Landsat satellite. And it's actually a system of uh, a couple of different satellites. And then they've also got this team making ground-based measurements to help correlate and estimate the soil loss and accretion that's happening on the ground with imagery that's happening in space. So if you think about it, we're using ground-based measurements to validate space-based imagery to make sure that we can understand reliably from photos taken in space um, what's actually happening on the ground. Is there more soil? Is there more water? Are we losing soil? Are we accumulating soil? Um, using ground-based measurements to help validate what happens on you know one tiny pixel on an image from space allows them to make these measurements over time um, because this Landsat mission from NASA um, has actually been been happening over the last almost 40 years. Um, they've had nine different satellites sent up into space and the whole point of Landsat was meant to capture at least 700 images per day, um, taking pictures of the earth, um, 115 mile wide photos and each pixels around hundred feet by hundred feet. Um, and we've been taking these photos every single day for the last 40 years. So if you think about it, we've got this historical database to understand what the land has looked like, what the water has looked like. And we use Landsat for all sorts of things, right? We use it to track um, ice caps melting and, and growing. We've we've used it to track um, how much of forests get burned during a wildfire. But this is one specific application of Landsat that allows us to capture um, the accretion, like you said, the accretion of soil during the wetlands and understand how much of the wetlands has been lost, where in the areas are wetlands being grown and help us understand the main drivers of change and then also how to address that to improve it in the future. I want to quickly talk about the method. Like you said, they're using ground data in association with the data they're getting from the satellite to make sense of what's actually happening, right? Yep. This kind of made me think about, I think, a very early episode we did about a new weather satellite that had some new equipments on board that was specifically made for better understanding coastline um, erosion and how waves were moving and things like that. So that quickly popped into my head of, I bet we can get even more accurate data if instead of using this Landsat, we're using that satellite system in association with the ground data that we have. Because they also talked about how, yeah, we're doing it with Louisiana right now, but there are so many um, wetlands that are also vulnerable around the world that we could apply the same approach with. Um, so having an even more robust system where you have this close feedback loop of ground data working with land, uh, satellite data to give us the most accurate data possible about the decisions we need to make on what to make or what not to make or how to reroute the resources, I think that'd be nice. And and that was episode four, by the way, the Michael Freilich 6 nice. satellite. Um, <laughs> Almost two years ago. Similar team, right, from the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, They're focused on improving weather forecasting using ground-based measurement and space-based measurement. So very similar principle there. Um, I'd like to dive into a little bit more of the technical specs of this Landsat 9 satellite. That It's the latest and greatest uh, version of of what we've got. So something that's interesting, right? So this this Landsat 1 that was launched 40 years ago, um, 
has the same resolution as the Landsat 9 that we're launching now today. And one that, that kind of confused me, right? Like, I'm sure imaging technology has improved since then. I'm sure if we go back to our ad at the beginning of this, right? Our space communication protocol have improved to allow us to send more data. Why wouldn't we be focusing on getting the highest resolution images possible? Well, really, when, when we boil it down to it, we wanted to have the same exact resolution as all the predecessors so that we could do pixel to pixel comparisons. And this is exactly why, right, for applications like this, I want to be able to look at pixel one, two, three, four, five that I took a photo of 40 years ago and take an exact comparison of pixel one, two, three, four, five today and have an understanding of how that pixel has changed over time. And when we think about it, remember a pixel is a 98 by 98 foot square. So, you know, around a hundred foot square on each side, right? Trying to understand how that 98 by 98 foot plot of land or water or wetland has changed over the last 40 years. This allows for an exact comparison of pixel to pixel to pixel for over 700 images per day. Um, that was Landsat 1. Now Landsat 9 can take 1400 photos per day of, of the earth, which I think is, I think it's really impressive and a little bit, um, you know, part of me is like, why wouldn't we just make it the highest resolution possible? Because that's what all the phone manufacturers do. They turn, you know, give you the highest megapixels, highest resolution camera ever. But I kind of like this approach here where they're trying to collect more data in the same exact framework that we've been doing it for the last 40 years. So we take more pictures at the same resolution as opposed to being focused on taking the maximum resolution photo possible. So they're, they're using some sort of process to analyze the large amount of pictures coming through, right? And like you said, when you have the same resolution, this analysis doesn't have to change. Like it's apples to apples. But let's say if the resolution bumps up, now the model that you're using to analyze this data also has to change, which becomes exactly. like this whole issue of, well, we've got to use this mathematical model for this set of data, another one for another set of data, and they each have their own inherent inaccuracies um, with the measurements that you're taking. So, yeah, that, that does kind of make sense. I think the key there is we've, we've got land imaging satellites in space that are focused on having the highest resolution possible or taking the clearest photos possible. This is not for that. This is a, a joint partnership between NASA and the U.S. Geological Survey to understand how our Earth is changing. Um, and that's why they're focused on getting these photos so that they can do pixel-to-pixel -pixel comparison, uh, you know, on a daily basis, on a database going back 40 years. Um, part of the way that they're able to achieve that is also interesting. Um, they travel in orbit, or, you know, 438, 440 miles above Earth, but they stay sun-synchronous, which means that the orbit, that the position of the satellite to the earth with the sun is the same every single day, no matter um, what season it is, no matter what day it is. Um, and that allows for this satellite to consistently shoot with the same lighting and angle every single time so that seasonality doesn't affect their photos, um, so that the position of the satellite doesn't affect their photos. It's a really, really interesting approach that they've taken. But if, if we think about it a lot, this this theme kind of runs through, which is they're using the technology stack to try and make sure that their images are most comparable every single day on a pixel to pixel basis in this database stretching back decades, which I think is really, really impressive, especially when we talk about all this data is publicly available through the U.S. Geological Survey. So I think in like 2009 or 2010, they made all this data available. And since then, they've seen an exponential increase in studies using this data once they made it like freely available on their website. So I think that's really cool that they focused on maintaining the integrity of these photos, maintaining the integrity of this scientific process 
so that teams like this one from LSU and Florida International University can use it to track the growth and shrinkage of wetlands. And other teams could use it for other stuff like we said about wildfire tracking or ice cap melting, etc. And j- just to kind of highlight the uh, importance of having this data widely available and the kind of research it you know, sparks, Dan, I don't know if you remember, but when you and I presented our research for the first time at our school, George Mason University, the poster next to us was for wetland protection using, uh, I forgot what it was, like specific vegetation. And they had models showing like how it was going to prevent erosion and things like that. So like it, it, it has reached, you know, to, to even our circle of researchers and, and, and our friends. So it's having wide scale access to this data is pretty critical for other people to also like pick up on and do the rest of the work on, again, how do we uh, prevent this kind of stuff from happening? How do we make more informed decisions about the structures that we're making within our wetlands? And that's that's kind of what I want to see. Like, I feel like these folks are mostly just the source of the data and raising the awareness, uh, you know, flagging it for politicians and things like that. But I'm curious to see, like, uh, you know, the domino effect it's going to have on the rest of the world and how we're going to use this data to do something valuable with it, like protecting the wetlands. So I guess that's the more exciting part. Yeah, and so this kind of bridges us to the so what, right? What's the significance of this team's work? What have they been able to achieve? Um, They've got really, really interesting data mapping all the land change on the Mississippi River Delta, coastal Louisiana, um, I think starting in 1984 to 2020. Um, They they have these basins divided up. A bunch of these names are challenging to pronounce, so I hope I don't butcher them. I probably will. There's the Calcasu, Mermentau, Vermillion, Achtaflaya, Terrabone, Barataria, Ponchartrain, Pearl, Breton Sound, and the bottom is the Mississippi River Delta. So they've got an understanding of the entire Louisiana coastline and can understand what's been gained, what's been lost over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. Over 180 square miles of land they can plot on a pixel by pixel basis where wetlands have increased in size where they have lost land and again that helps us um, especially as we start to implement preventative measures or corrective measures to try and maintain the health of these wetlands we can use this data and in a continuing basis using the landsat uh, satellite to track the accretion rate to track where we're moving the needle by doing certain things to improve the wetland situation and which wetlands or which deltas may need particular attention you know, where should we start first to try and try and save it? So I, I think it, you know, right now we haven't seen this immediately impact our coastland um, protection. That being said, you've got a model now that you can go apply to a bunch of different wetlands around the world. And you can also use this as a feedback loop to help inform our efforts to protect the wetlands in Louisiana and then again around the world. What is it going to mean for Louisiana in the next five years, six years, you think? I don't know. It, it would be interesting to see um, as, as they get more information on what they're able to impact, right? And we talked about just wetlands in general, but specifically on the Mississippi River Delta, right? It, it's a key player in the economy, in fisheries, in agriculture, in tourism, in shipping. Transportation, um, yeah. Even, even in the oil industry, right? We, we rely on... Um, a lot of the certain parts of this wetlands to be exactly the way that they are 
for us to continue doing operations the way that we have, or, or we rely on them being healthy because it boosts fisheries for us to be able to continue doing the things that we're doing to support our population, to support our economies. Um, this is something like coastal wetlands help preserve all those items. So I'd love to see this as a, you know, we use this as a corrective measure or, or inform corrective measures to where we aren't looking at the Mississippi river Delta saying, you know, all of this is going to wash away one day. We've got a clear path to correcting it at some point. Yeah. What I'm hoping for, you talked about it, you know, those siblings that came up with the wind turbines, uh, the water turbines that actually help push the sediment through, right? That's a great um, example of innovation actually meeting uh, the needs that we have while not hurting the environment. So it'd be nice to see some sort of regulation placed around really all man-made structures that go into these wetlands that comply with uh, the goals that we have for these wetlands that we're trying to rejuvenate. So that that's kind of like my best case scenario of what I would like to see with this data. Yeah, th- those are like our home run outcomes. Yeah. One thing that I think is like I, I in the short term is a goal, and I think it's definitely going to happen, is this team from NASA, Caltech, LSU, FIU, they go try this approach with other major wetlands. Um, if we think about it, there's been a net loss of around 4,000 square kilometers of wetlands in the world over the last two decades. Um, and that, that includes really important places like Nile. the Great Lakes, um, the Nile Delta, yeah. the Amazon, Siberia. Um, there's wetlands on every single continent except Antarctica. Um, and every single one of those, for the most part, is declining. So if they're truly part of our, you know, the most vulnerable, most threatened, but also the most valuable part of our ecosystem – this is something that I'd love to see this team go take this approach and apply it elsewhere to help inform corrective measures around the world, not just on the Mississippi River Delta in Louisiana. Yeah. No, I totally agree. It'd also just be nice to get everybody on the same page, right? It's one thing if we're just staring at Louisiana and then you got the U.S. chipping in, but the world is, you know, belongs to everyone. And Exactly. You know, we got to take care of our home. Yeah, there's our, there's our sappy ending right there. Right? Yeah. Yeah, that is a pretty good note to end it on. The sappy ending. We got to take care of our home. <laughs> All right. So to those that celebrate, happy Thanksgiving. Um, thank you guys so much for supporting us. We can't believe we're almost at the two-year mark now. And almost at 100 episodes. Almost at 100 episodes. That's that's pretty crazy to think that every week for almost two years that we've been doing this and you guys have been supporting us, it means a ton. I think I speak for both of us when I say we're very thankful for your support and the fact that you've been uh, enjoying this ride with us. And 100%. We hope that we- this is only possible because of the awesome community that we have. 100%. 100%. And uh, as always, thank you so much, and we will see you in the next episode. Peace. That's all for today. The Next Bite Podcast is produced by Weevolver. And to learn more about the topics we discussed today, visit Weevolver.com. If you enjoyed this episode, Please review and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of your favorite platforms. I'm Forbode. And I'm Daniel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.